talk of reopening the economy has begun here in New York and in the capital region. But we're not there yet. Some people are not happy about this. Our message is that enough is enough. And some are thrilled to have the downtime. I'm happy to say it involved me drinking a beer. The Times Union has seen both sides of that COVID coin come out this week. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top stories in the Times Union. We'll hear from two of the reporters who have led the charge in local pandemic coverage since it began. I never thought that I'd be reporting on a, on a global pandemic. And we'll give the planet a little shout out in honor of the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Basically, we're, we're seeing the sky now kind of like it looked in 1800. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what appeared in the Times Union this week. I am here again now on a video chat with Times Union editor Casey Seiler. Casey, let's start with the top stories this week. What did we have in the paper? Hey, Jess. Well, I I thought one of the best stories we had uh, was in the Sunday paper by Mandy Fries and Kayla Harris, who looked at the dearth of coronavirus testing upstate. Testing, of course, on the federal level, as well as on pretty much every state level, is clearly the, the topic of the week. And they did what I thought was a really outstanding overview of how far many, many regions of upstate are behind in terms of getting really comprehensive testing programs set up, which is not, of course, entirely the fault of cities, towns and you know county governments, but is just a result of the, you know, the deficit in materials that are necessary to set up a big testing program, which, of course, you're going to need to have in place before you can open up your economy, your community again between testing and contact tracing and making people able to kind of shelter in place if they have any kind of symptoms at all, we're not going to be able to open things up again in, in anything approaching a full way. So that was that was terrific. And it fed into what became uh, you know a series of stories about amped up efforts to set up testing programs across the capital region. We had a number um, of more testing uh, facilities open up in addition to what you might describe as kind of pop-up antibody testing that is now being set up um, by the states. And that was a big deal and something of a surprise, including a bit of a surprise to uh, some local leaders who had not been uh, apprised of the fact that that the state was moving ahead with setting up these antibody uh, testing centers. Now, more news from the Capitol. There was a protest down there this week on Wednesday. What happened? Yeah, a a very dramatic kind of two-track scene where, as the governor was holding his midday briefing on the state response to the health crisis in the Red Room within the Capitol, outside there were what um, the aforementioned Kayla Harris uh, described as hundreds of protesters outside. 
many in their vehicles honking, making their displeasure at the ongoing state shutdown or pause, to use the governor's uh, term, known. Uh, our message is that enough is enough. Uh, we've uh, closed down, shut down. We agreed to it two weeks, three weeks in the beginning of COVID-19. And right now, we're at the point where we want to get back to work. But some people who got out, some of whom got out of their vehicles, some of them wearing masks, some of them not wearing masks, as she described, it was made up of, you know, a lot of people who were very supportive of President Trump and uh, very opposed to Governor Cuomo for probably what I think it would be fair to say are pre-existing reasons, as well as people who might not necessarily be uh, be predisposed to be huge fans of the president or enemies of Andrew Cuomo who are dealing with the kind of economic desperation that comes from having their businesses shut down. There are families that need money. Um, assistance is not enough. We don't want charity from anybody. We just want to get back to work. That's really the message today to Governor Cuomo. Uh, you saw people saying, you know, my my business is essential, needing to, to get their operations set back up again. A lot of don't tread on me, um, flags, that type of thing. And I just like to point out that Kayla was down there as well as Lori Van Buren, who is one of our photographers. And they did what they could to, of course, keep themselves safe um, in a protest that did not always uh, follow the niceties of social distancing. So uh, there was a certain amount of bravery involved in, in being down there and covering it. And I, I think that's worth noting. In a time when you know frontline workers are getting a, a ton of well-deserved respect and praise for what they're doing, in addition to people in retail, people who are involved in public transportation, that type of thing. You know, journalists are on the front lines as well. And as I think we've discussed before, photographers especially cannot do their jobs unless they are out among the public. So I just think that's worth noting. Yeah, we had a great interview with Will Waldron last week. He's the Times Union photo editor, and he had some interesting tales from going out into the field during a time of social distancing. And you can listen to that at timesunion.com. But certainly in my talks with our fabulous, intrepid reporters. They are doing an excellent and amazing job, and I am completely in awe of everything that they're doing right now. So I'll second that. It's really encouraging. And on another positive note, hopefully, um, the Times Union is launching a new series of Facebook Lives that are going to focus on what happens after we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic and we start to get back to business. So what can we look forward to here? Yeah, the program is called Back to Business, Insights on Restarting the Capital Region Economy. And the first one is going to be this coming Tuesday, that is April 28th at nine o'clock and uh, in the morning, that is. And people can access it by going to the Times Union's um, Facebook page. Uh, We're doing it in partnership with Hugh Johnson Advisors, a prominent uh, financial planning firm Uh, here in the capital region. Hugh Johnson, he's sort of the number one guy when it comes to uh, economic economic forecasting in the capital region. He's going to offer what might be seen as something of an introduction to the whole four sessions that we're going to be doing. But this first one is going to be devoted to questions of how we can get back to work and what the workplace is going to look like and how businesses can already start to prepare to bring their workers back. So we've got a really good panel that includes David Holtgrave, who is the Dean of the School of Public Health at UAlbany, 
Guy Madalone, who is the founder and CEO of GTM Payroll Services, and Kristen Stangle, who is a human resources resources advisor uh, at the uh, at the same company, GTM Payroll Services. So, we're going to touch on questions like, you know, how should uh, businesses bring their folks back? What if somebody says, "I can do my job from home"? Can I please continue to do that? How do you keep workspaces sanitized as regularly as you need to? It's, uh, I'm sure, going to be fascinating. In upcoming sessions that we're going to be having on May 5th, we'll be talking about, you know, maintaining access to capital, which is, of course, you know, as important as as being able to, to keep your workforce together. And then on May 12th, you know, specific workforce challenges. And then on May 19th, the question of uh, retooling your business, in other words, what challenges and opportunities you know lie ahead when we do all come back and when the economy begins to rev up again? So, if you have a business, large or small, I think these are going to be really fascinating discussions, and I would encourage people to uh, to sign up. And you can sign up by going to Back to Business 2020. That's Back to Business 2020.eventbrite.com if you want to register for those sessions. That sounds really exciting. We're all looking forward to that. So lastly, uh, some of the times union staffers got together for a socially distant, safe gathering. Can you tell us more about what happened? Yes, I'm happy to say it involved me drinking a beer. Um, It was our first kind of hump day uh, happy hour, which was consulted on Zoom. And uh, it was a really it was a really good time. I think we had about 15 people at the height of it. And we talked about what everybody was uh, streaming on TV. We talked about uh, what what looked like a delicious uh, plate of muffins that Rachel Silverstein had made and how she had found, I guess, an app that if you just feed in uh, the ingredients that are left over in your pantry, it will provide you with, uh, with a recipe that, <laughs> that you can make something with. So I, I would encourage anybody, you know, if you're in an organization, if you're in a business, if you just, you know, miss seeing friends or colleagues or coworkers or anything like that, to give it a try because it, it did it, it's certainly not a cure-all and it's not a replacement for seeing people regularly in person, but it was a lot of fun and and I think it was a good stress relief. And as I think we've discussed previously, we've got a couple, a handful of employees who were just hired at the Times Union and they're still living far away. We've got somebody in Dayton, we've got somebody in Virginia. And um, and so they actually got to see faces to go with the names and the avatars of people that they had seen on, you know, Slack discussions and stuff like that. So a lot of fun. Indeed. And of course, they both had much better weather than we had here. So they were taunting us with their outdoor backgrounds. Yeah. On a day on a day that started off with snow in the capital region, these people were sitting out on their porches and it was uh It was quite frustrating. (laughs) Well, I'm sure brighter days are ahead for the weather. But uh, thank you again for joining me, Casey. And we'll talk again next week. Thanks, Jess. Be well. We've been talking a lot about the extensive coverage of COVID-19 and the coronavirus the Times Union has put out since the pandemic began. The intrepid reporters behind it have been toiling away ceaselessly night and day. And I reached out to them this week to check in. I'm on a video call with Times Union reporters Bethany Bump and Steve Hughes. Hey, guys, thanks for joining me. Hi. Hi, thanks for having us. So you two have been leading the charge of what we've been kind of affectionately calling Corona Local here at the paper. And that kind of means that's our coverage of the local impact of the coronavirus. 
which more often than not has gotten the A1 spot in the paper. So Bethany, let me start with you. Can you just take me through a day, your typical day at the helm of Corona Local? Sure. So I wake up and first thing I do is check my email, which is pretty sad, but true. I'm lucky now I don't have to waste time with my commute, but sort of the first thing I do every day is I just do a morning news check, make sure I'm not missing anything. Uh, Well, I try to schedule interviews around, you know, the governor's daily press briefings. And um, if it's a day when Steve is not available to cover uh, Albany County Executive Daniel McCoy's daily press briefing, I will tune into that from the Facebook live stream and uh, watch through that and sort of uh, write a web story as we're going along. We sort of approach it from this idea of, you know, we want to collect all the statistics from these local counties as they're putting them out um, as sort of our baseline. Like that might not be the entire story that day. You know, there might be some new development that is more interesting than just, you know, a play-by-play of what the day's um, case counts are or hospitalizations are or death stats are. And then sort of by the end of the day, and I think Steve will agree, you know, there's kind of a feeling of, of what the day's developments might be or what the day's trends might be. You know, we might hear from counties that are um, experiencing, you know, more cases in their local nursing homes. So that might be a story. Yeah, that's sort of how I go throughout my day. A lot of refreshing. That's great. Now, Steve, I imagine you have a similar experience. So I'll ask you, what is the hardest part about covering a pandemic like this at the local level? I think the hardest part for me is really getting real people stories. And that's simply because one, there's not as many people around and two, um, it's really hard to to get in touch with them. You know, when the county opened up mobile test sites down in the city of Albany, I would have loved to go down and talk to some of the people who walked up to those sites and find out why they weren't getting tested at the Albany site before or how they found out about it and what they thought about the process. But unfortunately, that that's a big risk going up and talking to someone who might have a uh, serious communicable disease. So that for me would be the big thing is getting a little bit beyond what we're told at maybe a half a dozen daily briefings that we check into between, you know, the different counties, the state, the presidents, and trying to get better information about what everyday people are seeing, feeling, and how they're experiencing this. We have to be very careful about where we're going for for interviews with quote unquote real people. And um, yesterday I was lucky because the the State Department of Health sort of made this media opportunity available at a local price chopper where they were doing random antibody testing. Yeah, when you go in, the lady in the like yellow will tell you where to go and there's it's a whole process, but it goes pretty quick. You know, their whole aim was to sort of get us in there and um, see the operation from afar. All the customers were wearing masks. I was wearing a mask, so I was able to snag a real live human at long last. I'm just, if I had it, that's great. If I didn't, then we continue on Uh as we have been. Uh You know, if I have some antibodies, I would feel much more comfortable because it's, there's so much unknown. Right. For an in-person interview, you know, I've been doing all these interviews over the phone, um, you know, talking to people, but it was so refreshing to actually do one in person, you know, from a safe distance, but in person, nevertheless. It's a little hard to hear through the masks as we're both talking, but um, no, it was nice. For me, I I was very, very sick um, back in 
February, oh. tested negative for flu. Yeah. But I haven't recovered yet. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I wonder if I had it. You know, it's like speculation. Mm -hmm. so what has been the most interesting thing to you as a reporter about this experience? That's really a tough question because I, I think the most interesting thing is also the most scary thing, which is that this is happening in the first place. I never thought that I'd be reporting on a, on a global pandemic. I just never thought, I never thought I would. Two years ago, I wrote a story about the, the 100th anniversary of the 1918 Spanish flu. And everybody I talked to at the time was like, this is going to happen again. You know, this is like, it happens every 100 years. We should, we should be prepared for it. And yet, you know, none of us seem to have been. So the most interesting part is just the situation of it, you know, the circumstance of it. It's, it's wild to me every day and um, disorienting and surreal, you know, I'm a reporter and I talk to other people about how they're being affected, but you know, it, it's hard, you know, for myself as well, just uh, from a mental health standpoint, from a being cooped up in the house standpoint. Yeah. I think the most interesting thing for me, kind of building off of what Bethany said is how quickly one, everything came to a screeching halt and two, how incredibly unprepared we were at every level for this. You know, you, you hear about people running tests and models for what an outbreak might look like, but it didn't look like anyone who paid attention to those tests was really prepared for what was going to happen. So I think that was a, a kind of a, a shock the first few weeks for me is we weren't ready for this. And I don't know if it's a reasonable expectation that we should have been. But also, I think something that's been interesting to me is how quickly people started to look around and try to make the best of it, you know, whether it's the uh, teachers going on parades for their kids because they care about their kids and they haven't seen them in weeks, or people reaching out to some of their neighbors, people just trying to figure out a way to say, well, we're here for the foreseeable future, so how do we make the best of this and get through this? From the governor's daily updates, which I've been following as well, you know, there's really no clear, we don't have any clear idea of when this is going to end, when we're going to get back to our normal lives. I mean, what are your thoughts going into the next days and weeks and maybe even months um, of covering this? It's hard to even think that far ahead because so much of my reporting is day to day. And, um, you know, especially when this first began, the pace of the news was just, it was rapid fire. It was hard to keep up with. And I know we were all sort of running around with our heads cut off, trying to just keep everything refreshed for people to know what was going on. And I know for me, it was really hard in the beginning to sort of take time to sit and reflect and think, okay, what is the deeper story here? What is, you know, something um, I should be looking into with maybe a broader impact or a different angle it's gotten a little bit easier in, in the last couple of weeks. I've been able to do some stories, you know, that I wanted to do that are kind of, you know, interesting angles. I, you know, this weekend I got to write about, sadly, you know, we're seeing a spike in the number of drug overdoses locally. And that was actually a story that I came on to from one of these daily briefings. Rensselaer County does an afternoon briefing every day. And they had mentioned that they were seeing a spike. And so, you know, I got to check in with the other counties just to say, hey, are you guys seeing this too? And uh, heard that they were. So I think that's kind of one thing for me is, um, you know, taking that time to reflect, uh, sit down and think, what 
is it a different thing that I could be reporting on? What is a different story I can be telling right now, aside from just the TikTok of, you know, everyday developments? From my point of view, I'm I'm kind of curious as to when the news about the if we're and we're ever going to be able to quantify how much this has really cost us, both in terms of lives and money and business. And I'm really interested to see, I think the governor just announced that you're going to be taking a regional approach to reopening the state. I'm curious what that's going to look like. I'm curious what that's going to look like two weeks after that. I'm curious when and if there's going to have to be a retreat because maybe we opened up too fast. I mean, there's so many questions out there that we just don't have the answers to. And like Bethany said, you know, it took us a couple of weeks to get into a, a rhythm of what our day-to-day looks like because, you know, the world seemed like it, it was uh, falling apart. And so now you're able to kind of pull back and say, okay, what questions are we not answering beyond the day-to-day, you know, how many people are sick, how many people have passed away, where do we go from here? And you hear people talk a lot about that we're not going back to normal. So then the big question is, okay, what is new normal and when do we come to that realization or decision that, yep, this is normal now? Yeah, those are tough questions to answer, but you guys are doing an amazing job. Thank you so much for joining me and stay safe out there. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks. After the break, celebrating Earth Day during a global pandemic, environment and energy business reporter Rick Carlin has a few thoughts about it. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Wednesday, April 22nd marked the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Celebrations this year were a bit overshadowed by the global pandemic we're all facing at the moment, though. But the spirit that brought about the first Earth Day in 1970 is still there. I checked in with business reporter Rick Carlin on video chat, who wrote about the implications of this pandemic Earth Day. He wrote that if we look up at the night sky right now, we're kind of looking into the past. Can you talk about that lot? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the shutdown attendant to the pandemic has has resulted in a real decrease in certain types of pollutants, mostly particulates, which is it's soot from tailpipes, from diesel trucks, from cars, some factories, and so forth. And and talking to some atmospheric scientists, basically, we're we're seeing the sky now kind of like it looked in 1800 or about 200 years ago. Because That's wild. Of, the, of the drop-off. Now, the, now, not everything is dropped off that quickly. The, the CO2, for instance, stays up there for a long time. But the particulates are what you see. That's a, that's a precursor to the ozone in the summer where you get this haze, you know, that sort of the hazy days in the summer. That's not natural. A lot of that comes from tailpipe emissions. Speaking of the past, it's the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. How was the situation with the environment and climate change at that time? It was a big deal then. It was like there's a, there's, there's a push to, to clean up the, mostly the air and the water. There were huge smog problems in the major cities. The, the water was horribly polluted. The Hudson River, you would not want to swim in it at all. There's all sorts of stories about oil slicks on the Hudson, the Cuyahoga River in Ohio caught fire. So PCBs were being dumped with abandon. It was perfectly okay to do it, legal. So we've come a long way, but now the big issue is climate change. 
the shorter winters, the, the hot summers, the global warming that we've that scientists have been able to document, the polar ice caps. Now all of a sudden there's a pandemic, which is much more immediate, and and some people can see it as an existential threat. But it's you know it, you might not immediately die from climate change. You might uh, have a lot of hassles. I mean, some people will die from it, but you know, if you're in the midst of a hurricane or, or, or something, but you're gonna, okay, there's less snow or it's hotter in the summer. If you catch COVID-19, you, you could die if you're you know, one of the vulnerable age groups. So it's like, it's, it's much more immediate and, and, and more existential for a lot of people. So you don't think that the pandemic itself, that you know, everybody's staying at home and fewer people driving and fewer people you know, um, uh, sort of taking up resources that contribute to climate change. Yeah. Do you think that actually could have a significant impact or are we just kind of fooling ourselves here? From, from what I'm hearing, they don't expect a lasting impact, at least the, the few people I've talked to. As I noted, some of the pollutants remain up there for a very long time in the upper atmosphere. They've seen this happen before from satellite uh, photos and, and so forth. After the Soviet Union collapsed, in the early 90s, there was a noticeable drop in the particulate matter, according to, to one of the researchers. After the 2008 recession, there was a drop. Even going back to the, the 1970s, there were, there, were, there were really, there were a couple of fuel crises. There was the, uh, the Middle East oil embargo in the early 70s, you know, there were gas lines. There was a drop then, according to some of these researchers. They, they were able to detect this. This phenomenon has happened, maybe not to the scale that it's happened. I mean, this is a global shutdown. And I think a lot of your, your, our viewers and readers might have seen the, the, NASA, the NASA satellite pictures of China, where mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable how much the air is cleaned up there. But I think that you know, there's an expectation that hopefully the world will reopen one of these days. We'll get back to business and the factories will reopen people will start driving and yeah the question is does, is this an opportunity to further reductions in carbon well yeah it could be the question is who's paying in your article you mentioned that um one of the organizations i think maybe in the north country or somewhere thereabouts had been measuring the particulates this is the uh, there's some suny university of albany their school of atmospheric sciences they have sensors they have one up at the on the top of whiteface and, and oh, another right. one at, at the bottom of the mountain and then in the southern tiers that, that's how they know that there's been this reduction in particulates when he told me that i was walking i went out for a walk the other day and it looked a little bluer the sky and clear, but you know, who knows? Hey, and if it makes you feel better while you're taking a walk during a pandemic, hey, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've read that, what is it, in Venice, uh, the canals are clearer. Sure, yeah, and the smog from LA and China and all of that. But in terms of the, you know, the pollution issues that we're dealing with here, I don't know, it's hard to say. I mean, it's, there's factories that are closed down. As you know, there's, there's still a fair amount of industry in this capital region. Mm -hmm. People don't realize it, but you know, there's a lot of, you know, old school factories that, you know, they're not necessarily big factories, but they're here. So, you know, drive up along the Hudson, along 787, and you'll see it along Coho's, Waterbury. You know, they're factory towns still. But we're not going to, like, walk out, you know, tomorrow and see a bright blue Hudson River, right? I think we'll probably see the same Hudson River that we saw yesterday and last <laughs> week and the year before. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and you know, yeah, a lot, I think a lot of the, the the talk here is over the air stuff, not the water. But well, what about the plastic bag ban? You wrote recently that grocery stores have had concerns about using the cloth bags, saying that they might carry the virus. So, what's the latest? Is the plastic bag ban here in New York on pause? The plastic bag ban. It looks like it's being pushed back even farther. Okay, that you could say is oh, maybe it's a step back. Is it a huge step back? I, Probably not, but it's an emergency step back. But if you uh, go to a supermarket, you're going to see in many of the supermarkets, you'll see the plastic bags have reappeared. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, like, is there yeah. has there been an official decree that that the, they go back to the plastic bags? The stores or? have some of the chains have done it on their own. They worry about what people are bringing in with them with their own reusable cloth bags. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, the environmentalists will say, well, you should wash the cloth bags. Do people do that? I don't know. And, you know, I've heard, I've heard one of the union members say, and you don't know where that bag has been. And they're, and they're being asked to pick it up and put the food in it. Sure. So they're exposed all day long to this stuff. So they'd rather you pack it yourself if you're bringing your own bag in. Mm-hmm. Or for now, just use the plastic or the paper. Some of the stores are, are just using paper bags like sure. do years and years ago. The movement towards um, the reusable cloth bags is definitely taking a step back for this pandemic. There, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But now that we have this COVID <laughs> pandemic, people are starting to wonder. We'll go back to using cloth bags and I guess eventually we're, we're going to throw them in the laundry hamper and wash them Yeah, like our clothes. This is a game changer for a lot of different realms of our Does the pandemic change the way we're going to live? You know, I probably. Sure. It's an yeah. interesting, interesting time to be alive. One well, last that's an old th- Chinese curse, right? Yeah. Yeah. When you live in interesting times. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, well, thank you so much for joining me. This is great. Ben. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on social or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. And stay safe out there.